Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. In just a few minutes, I'm going to have the pleasure of speaking to Alex Thier, um, who is a senior democracy fellow at Freedom House. Um, He's worked as a senior advisor um, to a senior official in the Obama administration, where he had the pleasure of working with President-elect Joe Biden. He's the executive director of the Overseas Development Institute in London. He is the, um, he's a senior advisor to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Basically, Alex is a really, really well-rounded international development and foreign policy specialist who has the advantage of having been uh, the person on this podcast to make the case for Joe Biden way back in the primary. So I was really eager to catch up with him about his thoughts about a Joe Biden presidency. Um, But before we do that, I wanted to give a couple of quick, exciting housekeeping announcements about this pod. Um, I'm sure some of you may have been wondering what my future plans are for the podcast and whether I will keep recording them now that the election is over. Um, I've thought about this a lot. And uh, what I've decided to do is to carry on um, through the inauguration. So um, I will keep recording these on a Friday schedule. So going back to my once a week schedule um, that the podcast had before the election cycle really kicked up in earnest um, with the concluding episode of the podcast taking place after the inauguration. I uh, will not do an inauguration day episode because that is my daughter's birthday, bless her. Um, But on uh, uh, Friday, the 22nd um, of that week will be the final episode of this podcast. But before that, really exciting uh, news to announce, which is that I have decided to host a live event, um, a post-Thanksgiving event on Saturday, the 28th of November. Um, I will invite on several of your (laughs) fan favorites. Um, Some some of my friends of the pod will be joining us. Um, Obviously, Emma Burnell, frequent podcast guest, will be on board. Um, Eric McElroy, who's a a stand-up comedian, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, has agreed to do a an opening brief set of his stand-up comedy related to the election. Um, More names to be confirmed uh, in the near future, Um, but really excited um, to be hosting an event. Um, I thought you all might want a chance to ask any questions, just have a chat, get together as a community. So so I'm going to try and enable that. So uh, look out for uh, an Eventbrite link um, inviting you to register for this event. It's going to be totally free of charge. It really is just a chance for us to all get together and just vent, chat, (laughs) celebrate, get excited, um, talk about the future, um, come together. So really excited for that. So so save the date, the 28th of uh, November. That's the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So you can still make yourself a, a leftover turkey sandwich. Um, excuse yourself from uh, from your family for a couple of hours and come join us. That event will take place starting from 6 p.m. London time, uh, which is 1 p.m. Eastern time. Um, I hope you can join us. So I am 
absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the podcast a uh, friend of this pod and the uh the 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 original Biden fan of Demo- for, for democratically 2020 Alex Thier. Alex was the person who did the episode making the case for Joe Biden way back in the primary. Um, clever today <laughs> because it's feeling like Biden was definitely the right choice, um, at least to me. Alex is also a, a foreign policy specialist and he's working right now with a task force um, uh, for uh, a U.S. strategy to support democracy and counter authoritarianism alongside Freedom House and a number of other bipartisan organizations. So um, has a lot to say from that point of view as well. Alex, welcome. Karen, such a delight to be with you. Such a delight. <laughs> I guess we have to start with the obvious point. Um, you were an early adopter of uh, of 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 Joe Biden for president in this election cycle, and um, you know I go back often to the case that you made in in that episode um, for why Joe Biden would be the right choice for America. How are you feeling today? Well, you know I am ecstatic and greatly relieved, like millions and millions of Americans and apparently people around the world. The news of uh, the election of Joe Biden and the non-election of Donald Trump, I think, has just lifted spirits tremendously in a in a dark time. Um, I think people are hopeful about the future. Uh, I think that people see that while American democracy is far from perfect, and that President Trump did still get a lot of votes. Um, ultimately, an amazing coalition of Americans from across the country, across racial and ethnic divides, even across political divides, ultimately banded together uh, to move forward uh, and not only to elect Joe Biden, uh, who I think is terrific, but also the historic election of Kamala Harris, the first woman to occupy the president or vice president role, a woman of color. So it really looks like change that America and the world, I think, badly need in this moment. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm over the moon with excitement um, and and thrilled with the outcome of the presidential race. Um, I think it's, you know, as you say, it's it's for Joe Biden and against um, Donald Trump. um, And I'm equally pleased about both sides of that ledger. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about to what extent you feel like um, there was an affirmative Joe Biden enthusiasm or whether Joe Biden was just the right person to coalesce together um, all of the different constituency bodies uh, of, of strong anti-Trump sentiment. In other words, was this was this a pro-Joe Biden or a anti-Donald Trump election that Joe Biden was happen- happened to be the right person to convene? I think it was really a combination of both. You know, one of the things that I think people are going to talk about a lot uh, in uh, this election, Biden's victory, is that for a modern American political candidate, he was remarkably on message from the beginning until the end. He launched his campaign in the wake of this horrible neo-Nazi march uh, in Virginia uh, that shocked the country and even more shocking that President Trump seemed to endorse some of the people who were spewing such incredible vile hatred. 
And he stepped out and he said, this is a moment in which we have to stand and not be silent. And I am running to restore the soul of the nation, uh, to restore and strengthen our democracy, uh, to create an inclusive government and to continue moving the project of American democracy forward. And he said that basically at every opportunity all the way through. And I think that that is a message that really resonated with people in a country that has become polarized uh, at a time when our polarization was deeply undermining our ability to succeed at home and abroad, to deal with things like coronavirus, to deal with the climate crisis, to deal with corrosive inequality, to deal with rising authoritarianism. I mean, all these things are deeply dangerous for America in the long term. And I think that that's exactly what Joe Biden spoke to. Uh, but he also spoke about it in a way, because it is who he is, that, that he was not a radical reformer and wanted to, I think from the very beginning, think about how to build a more united and bipartisan coalition to move the country forward. Now, of course, that's what also tempers the enthusiasm of some people who want to see more radical change. And I, and I think that that's going to be a, a debate uh, going forward. Uh, but at the same time, it was that spirit, I think, that allowed him to build the coalition that could defeat Donald Trump, that could defeat a sitting incumbent with all of the powers of the presidency. It really doesn't happen that often. Um, and it shouldn't be overlooked that that having a unifying figure is the type of uh, the type of figure who can actually do that. And I think that that's what Joe Biden always represented. Yeah, I think you touch very nicely on the fact that there are there are a lot of people within Joe Biden's current coalition who were hoping for who are still, I think, hoping for more um, more big change than Joe Biden talked about in in the election cycle. Um, and we'll still be hoping for that. And and of course, Joe Biden is, um, you know, historically has always been somebody who cares a lot about building relationships and listening, um, bringing people together. And that's the promise that he led. I'm curious kind of how you think um, he might start to bring together his electoral coalition into a governing coalition. Um, how do you take all these, everybody from John Kasich to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, how do you bring together groups of people who have so little in common and try to turn them into a governing majority? I think that there's a few things that, that he is going to do that will be dramatic and notable from the beginning. Uh, I firmly believe that he is going to have the most diverse in terms of female representation, in terms of minority representation, government that the United States has ever seen. Uh, I think that that is a deep commitment of the candidate and the vice president and their campaign. They've said it over and over again. And I think that you are going to see a government that really looks like America in all respects. I think that that probably also means that he's going to reach out and maybe try to bring uh, as is often done by Democrats, a Republican into the cabinet or into an important place. I think that he is going to, when we figure out who runs the Senate, I think he's going to reach out to some of the moderate senators on the Republican side and see what sorts of big th deals can be made uh, for legislation. Um, and I think uh, that he is going to have a couple of things. I mean, people want 
change across the board. And I understand that. I think that there are a couple of things where his platform is really going to be one of the most progressive that we have ever seen. Yeah. Uh, I think on climate change, I mean, they have come out already and said one of the top four priorities is climate change. They have come out and said that one of the top four priorities is dealing with racial injustice. They have come out and said one of the top four priorities is dealing with inequality. And of course, the one is, uh, which in many ways touches on all of those, yeah. uh, particularly on inequality um, and and racism, the way that it's manifested in the in in who's who's dying and and who's suffering economically in this country. Um, so I think you're going to see what, in many ways, looks like a very progressive platform. I think some of the ways in which you're going to see more moderation is probably um, on some of the economic issues um, that are are going to be really hard to get through um, with the Senate. Um, but I think you're going to see some things that would really excite progressives basically of any generation um, and certainly should those today. Absolutely. I think climate change is one that we've talked about in this podcast before as an area where um, Biden, after the primary, really did sit down with progressives and and not just adopted their thinking, but adapted his thinking to his own and came up with a, a, a plan that I think brings the best of both of those to light. Another way in which climate change is important is it's an area where I think the rest of the world has been looking for America to improve um, drastically and and pick back up the leadership that, you know, they were starting to show under the Obama administration. Um, how do you think Biden is going to prioritize his work with other countries around the world on this and other issues? Well, I think one of the most important things that, that Biden has talked about from the beginning, and I think it's really striking, is that the things that are priorities for America at home are also going to be our international and foreign affairs and development priorities. So you look at climate change, right? This is fundamental for the United States. Joe Biden wants to invest $2 trillion, be a leader in clean technology and energy efficient technology, uh, and that's going to be critical for American uh, economy and its place in the world. Uh, but that's also going to benefit broadly on climate change, not only by bringing down U.S. emissions, but by helping other countries also to figure out how to reach their contributions so that we can limit global warming. Uh, and so that's going to be one of these core things that is a priority at home and abroad, and you can't separate the two. You know, democracy and countering authoritarianism is another uh, there is a very strong belief that some fundamental aspects of our democracy here in the United States are under threat. When you look at the impact of, of interference in elections, when you look at disinformation, when you look at things like voter suppression, all of those things are absolutely our democracy. They are also problems that almost every democracy around the world is also facing. Uh, corruption, similarly. And so our work on improving American democracy, working on technology to address disinformation, working on better financial systems to detect and prevent and punish corruption, those are things that are going to help us here in the United States. They are also going to be critical for other democracies uh, that are struggling to deal with those problems. So again, you've got this 
fix it at home, fix it abroad, very mm -hmm. similar sorts of things. And I think inequality as well. Uh, I think inequality as well. It's going to be really important uh, for the United States to figure out how to make globalization agreements and all of these things actually work for the benefit and betterment of those who deserve more of the gains from rising prosperity, which has not been the story of the last 20 or 30 years. And that's got to be addressed at home, but it's also should be fundamental to our trade deals and our international investment strategy uh, around the world. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. And it, it raises a point that I always think about when I think about Donald Trump's negotiating negotiation style, because it seems clear when when Donald Trump goes to other countries in the world to enter a conversation, he always assumes a zero sum game. He always assumes if I'm doing well, then, you know, then you must lose out. It can't be for mutual benefit. Um, and I'm just curious what your take on on Biden's negotiation strategy is from that point of view, because he always strikes me as a very win win kind of guy, like a classic Senate negotiator in the let's put together a package where we all get a little bit. Is that does that seem fair? Well, it's interesting. I think that there's going to be a real test coming in because the situation with China, uh, let alone uh, the EU and the UK and others, is very different from what uh he experienced as vice president and certainly as senator. And I think that we are going to be in a moment of the formation of new coalitions to deal with big problems. So one of the big ideas out there from uh, President-elect Biden, fun to say, President-elect <laughs> Biden, uh, is uh, this idea of holding a summit of democracy. And the big question is going to be, what is the agenda for a new grouping of democracies? Is it to focus on these critical issues of strengthening democracy and the pillars of democracy, independent media, civil society, credible elections around the world? Or does it also go farther than that, as even Boris Johnson has suggested, having a, a D10, a, a group of 10 democracies or T12 big techno technology powers getting together and thinking about the future of things like 5G and regulating social media, or even dealing with climate change. So there's some new alliances, I think, to be formed and had. And I think one of the big challenges is going to be that China plays a very different role, and unfortunately, a more antagonistic role then I think what what certainly President Biden and Vice President, or sorry, President Obama and Vice President Biden had been trying to achieve during their time, which was finding ways to collaborate with China, dealing with China's rise peacefully, trying to make them a better part of the international system. Unfortunately, over the last several years, I think we've learned that China has become much more antagonistic to democracy, um, and uh, to free speech, not only obviously of its own citizens. Uh, President-elect uh, Biden already said that he believes that China is committing genocide in Western China against the Uyghur population. So there's going to be more confrontation in that relationship. And as a result of that, um, thinking about how do you how do you do win-win becomes a little bit more difficult because you're it, it, the debate's a little sharper. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, coming from a European perspective, I can tell you that, you know, the perspective here is very much they see, you know, on the continent of Europe and even in the UK, there's a certain sense of kind of democracy under siege. And over the past few years, there's been a real anxiety about uh, the United States playing the opposite of its usual democracy promotion role. Um, so I think from that point of view, that's one of the reasons perhaps that you've seen such such quick and eager uh, welcoming of President-elect Biden's role. Um, I'm curious, I, I, you probably won't ha necessarily have any specific thoughts on this, but in the UK in particular, there's a lot of chatter around where I am about what his relationship with Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to be like, um, because Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the UK, um, famously made some very critical, I would I would say racially inflected um, comments about President Obama which did not go down very well, <laughs> safe to say, with the Obama administration. Um, and this was before he was prime minister, I think, when he was mayor of London. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about kind of what the UK-US relationship might look like. Well, in fact, I do. You know, a few months ago, um, working with the Westminster Foundation for Democracy there in London, um, I wrote a paper uh, called A Force for Good, how the UK uh, can put support for democracy at the heart of UK foreign policy. Uh, because the UK right now is involved in this search for its new strategy, this national review that, that is going to be done soon. Obviously, they're going to have to think about what the United States as a partner uh, under President Biden is going to look like, which might have been quite different. Uh, but I think there's really good news for the UK in that, um, because what the United States really needs from the UK now is a partner in doing exactly what you talked about, which is strengthening democracy, the need for open societies as a core values and interest-based foreign policy and national security policy. You know, the UK in recent years has done great works. David Cameron held a big international summit on countering corruption, which came up with great ideas, but didn't result in a lot of action yet. Uh, last year, uh, the prime minister uh, held a conference or the foreign minister, uh, UK foreign minister held a conference on the importance of independent media and media freedom. So I would say if Boris Johnson wants to score some early points, what he needs to come out with is a robust way to collaborate with one of the top items on the Biden agenda, which is thinking about how to strengthen democracy and counter authoritarianism. And I would put immediately alongside that because of the UK hosting the next conference of parties uh, for um, climate change issues uh, that, that climate change. The way that they will find their footing in this relationship is by good collaboration. Uh, you know, the past is the past. They are going to be leaders of two of the most important countries in the world. I actually think that there's the potential for some very strong policy alignment on things that both leaders care about or should really care about. And, and that's what's going to make the difference, ultimately. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, the fact that, that Biden has Irish ancestry, um, a lot of people are talking about that here and the fact of the Good Friday Agreement has been perhaps treated with less respect than uh, many in the UK would like it to be in the course of our negotiations around Brexit. Um, and there's been some conversation. Sorry, this is getting very inside baseball for the non-UK well, listeners. But that, but, that yeah. comment that 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 uh, <laughs> President-elect Biden made to the BBC reporter the other day about being Irish yeah. is real. I mean, <laughs> what about the BBC? Well, I'm Irish. <laughs> and he is. <laughs> You know, I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where where Biden is from. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there is a very, very powerful Irish Catholic leadership in that city. And I say that because he grew up in a place that is very Irish identified uh, and that really takes seriously what it means to be Irish American. Yeah. Um, it's not just a it's not just a coincidence of his biography. It's actually pretty fundamental to the identity of I think his own identity. Um, and that's real. He he carries that with him. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so we've talked about democracy promotion abroad. Um, let's talk about democracy promotion in the U.S. a little bit, um, because obviously, well, this is the seventh of the last eight presidential elections in which a Democrat won the majority of the popular vote. But it is not the seventh of of eight that we've won in a row um, to actually become president. So um, it's clear that our, our political system um, I would argue is overdue for some reform and revalidation, um, not just the Electoral College. I think there are a lot of valid concerns about where the Supreme Court is going and kind of the partisan nature of the courts, not just at the Supreme level, but below that. I think there's a lot of conversations worth having about partisan gerrymandering and, and how that manifests itself in Congress. I mean, the fact that, you know, um, a very small proportion of uh, of the country is represented by a majority of senators, um, for example. I'm curious, obviously, we did not wind up taking back the Senate, which Democrats had host, hoped to do. And it's not clear what appetite there would have been in the Biden administration anyway for domestic political structural reforms. But I'm curious kind of what you would imagine as being possible actions a Biden administration might take to think about making our politics work better. Well, as you as you said, unfortunately, um, the Senate uh, will be all important in that discussion. And I will say to your listeners, uh, particularly Georgia Ameri voters, <laughs> uh, <laughs> particularly Americans and particularly Georgia voters, uh, it ain't over. Uh, there are two candidates, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, who are running in the Georgia runoff. If both of them won, which will take votes and money. Uh, then, you know, it would be a very, very different picture because for those who don't follow the Senate very carefully, if there's a 50-50, uh, it is the vice president who gets the tying, uh, who gets the tiebreaker vote. Um, and so it would be phenomenal uh, if you had uh, Kamala Harris as the 51st vote, um, a, uh, a black woman uh, who uh, is able to reform the American uh, political and democratic system in that role. 
And who knows a um, thing or two about wielding power in the Senate already. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. No. And so it, 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 it's, it's hard to answer that question because I do think that there are some very important reforms that the United States does need to undertake, uh, but it will require the Senate to do that. And you're likely, unfortunately, to see those things as very party line, because one of the deeply disturbing thing about many of the issues that you raised is that, and I truly believe this, it sounds partisan, obviously, I'm, I, I'm a Democrat, but many of the reforms that Democrats want around nonpartisan gerrymandering, around one, you know, one, one person, one vote in the electoral uh, college around statehood for DC as a longtime DC resident, not having a representative in Congress is it's outlandish. I mean, it's it is not democratic, and so many of these things I think the Democrats want are not to to make advantages in the system partisan advantages for Democrats. It is to say that every American should be represented equally. Every American should always not only have the right to vote, but should have an easy path to voting, um, and that votes should be counted equally. And the fact that we have this system where you can have presidents losing the popular vote by millions of people and still becoming president. The fact that you could have such a preposterously skewed Supreme Court when clearly a majority of Americans do not support that uh, is really not just unfair, but it is damaging to the long-term prospects of our democracy and increasing our polarization. Uh, if the Republicans want to win more votes, they've got to come up with a party that is inclusive and a platform that wins those votes. They can't continue to restrict the political system so that they hold power uh, without without the majority. Yeah, it's uh, it's very challenging and very scary to live in a country that so often seems to be minority controlled and where the levers for implementing the will of a democratic majority of the people f seem to be few and far between. So, um, yeah, I think it's in the long term, it's it's dangerous for our democracy. It's dangerous, to be honest, for the Republican Party, because they are not incentivized to come up with popular policies because they can they can push through their unpopular policies that they prefer. They never have to learn how to actually run effectively or govern but um yeah that's that's just my little my little nickel <laughs> um you talked about you talked about the the georgia runoff obviously on the 5th of january there will be two seats up for grabs in georgia um what are your thoughts on our prospects for winning either of those seats either or both ideally I don't know enough about georgia politics to say i do know that it is likely to be the greatest avalanche of political money into one state uh, ever. I mean, not just one, but two races. Um, the, the balance of the Senate hinging on the outcome. Uh, one of them was very, very close. Um, and the fact that Georgia flipped in favor, it appears, of uh, President-elect Biden in this election is in itself historic. 
Um, and so it's really anyone's guess, uh, but there's going to be a lot of focus and attention on Georgia, probably more than Georgia could, should rightly withstand, uh, in the coming weeks. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't have to, I have to admit, I I'm torn between slightly pitying and slightly envying Georgia's voters because they're going to get some attention I would expect. Well, and there's a danger. You know, I spend a lot of time in Maine. Um, yeah. and Maine, very unfortunately, uh, uh, did not uh, turn out uh, their long-sitting uh, senator in favor of uh, Sarah Gideon, the young up-and-comer. And I joked to friends and then actually heard somebody interviewed say the same thing, that in Maine probably didn't choose the Democrat because they were told by everybody out of the state that they had to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so there's always a risk of uh, of alienating people by coming in from the outside and telling them who they should vote for. Well, I mean, that touches on a big issue in this election, isn't it? Um, in the end, the presidential election, you know, fortunately, thank all the gods there be, um, did not wind up being all that close. Joe Biden is going to win convincingly. Um, it looks like he'll probably have about 306 electoral votes, um, which is a, a very convincing victory. But most of our, many of our congressional candidates, let's say that, underperformed the Biden campaign. I know there's going to be a lot of a lot of soul searching that we'll be doing about that. But do you have any initial reaction as to why you think that might be why we didn't take back the Senate and and wound up losing a few seats in the House? Yeah, it's striking and certainly not, I think, what a lot of people were expecting. Um, Not as not as much of a blue wave as you would have thought the four years of of incredible bad behavior by the president would have brought. Uh, But I think the fact that Trump lost convincingly and that other Republicans did not reflects the fact that it is a very divided country um, and that Americans, you know, traditionally are often quite uncomfortable with one party rule. Uh, It tends not to last very long in this case, maybe not at all. Um, And, you know, I believe that there is a root in this that is not just about I'm Democrat or Republican. Um, I really think that it is about the feeling that people have lost trust in government. They have lost trust in the truthfulness of politicians, if that was ever a thing. Uh, They have certainly lost trust in uh, the Congress and the ability of their leaders to make sure that they are really looking out for for people um, in the way that they should be, that they are first and foremost committed public servants and worried about health and equality at a a basic level. And I think that... um, both the Democrats and the Republicans are really going to have to figure out how to reach the issues that are really affecting people, uh, because so many people, not just because of the pandemic, although that's important, but so many people over so many years have really seen a decline in their living standards, a decline in their real wages, a decline in the infrastructure that they can rely on. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, to them, I think, looks like a, a failing political system. Yeah. 
I mean, I think you're right about there being a, a, a large tranche of voters who feel let down and disappointed by the state of America today and who are potentially reachable. There is also a, a group of Trump voters. Um, I don't want to say they're a majority or a minority, but a sizable group of Trump voters who are just living in an alternative reality that doesn't relate to anything in the facts. Um, and of course, Trump himself is arguably in that camp because he has not conceded this election, probably will never concede this election. Um, and a lot of his followers are are true believers in things like QAnon and various conspiracy theories. Um, and, you know, however many people we're talking about, we're talking about enough people that they're going to be a bit of a thorn in the side for for president-elect Biden, won't they? How how would you propose that he go forward um, in the midst of what remains a very difficult environment of uh, conspiracy theories um, very prominent in the American psyche? Yeah, it's really disturbing. And you look at the foundations of something like QAnon. And what it is really about is, first of all, that, as you say, people get their information from sources and that information may not be true. Uh, it may not be checked in the traditional ways that we believe that information should be in order to be published. Uh, and it's accessible to them, and they believe it because they have lost trust in the other outlets that are telling them differently. And that is a deep problem and dysfunction. You know, people talk about the great Chinese firewall, and they're kind of hiving off the internet so that they can tell their own story. Ironically, maybe all that wasn't necessary because it's happened here in the United States, and nobody's imposing the yeah. closing the internet or or censorship. It's just that people have kind of gone into their own information tunnels and and live there and that's it's obviously very dangerous but there's a there's something that undergirds that which is that people are prepared to believe these outlandish things because they have lost trust that po that politicians are actually looking out for them that politicians aren't corrupt that politicians aren't criminal that there is accountability in the system and that is really you know, something obviously that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, I think that the best bet, honestly, uh, for the Biden-Harris administration is to do two things. I think they need to continue to be inclusive in their language and find compromises where they can. But I also think that they really need to apply their best effort to govern the country in a way that will change things in the long term. If you address some of the underlying issues of inequality, I think over time that will help. If you address issues of a problematic criminal justice system or corruption creeping into the American political system, whether elections are bought or actual corruption where people are, are, are taking money for the wrong things, all of those things, if you deal with them, I think will make the situation better. And so I think they actually need to govern boldly. Mm -hmm. uh, look, when President Obama underwent ceaseless racism and Tea Partyism, and they spent an awful lot of their time worrying about whether they were going to get any Republican votes on the Affordable Care Act and all of that, ultimately, after years of thinking they could 
after years of being promised to make compromises that never came through, they passed it and 20 million more people got health insurance. I would rather see those sorts of outcomes by governing boldly that ultimately help people in the long term than only worrying about whether there is going to be opposition in the near term, because there is. And Trumpism was not defeated in this election. Trump was, uh, but that hatred, that, that bigotry is not likely to go away instantly. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. The best the best defense is a good offense, and the best way to prove that you can govern effectively is to govern effectively and and just brush past the obstacles put in your path. Um, it's just frustrating that so many of those obstacles are um, from Republicans who pretend to be patriotic and are actually do so much damage to the country um, with fostering a lot of this conspiratorial thinking. Never mind. Listen, Alex, shall we play the gut check game? Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So for those who are new to the podcast, um, what I have in front of me are some little bits of paper that I have put inside my trusty Red Sox baseball cap. On these bits of paper are some quotes or sayings overheard in the political sphere. I'm just going to pull them out of the hat, read them out, and Alex and I will just react. Simple as that. So first one overheard this week. Oh, yes, this is my favorite. Okay. Um, this is from Zach Bornstein, who's an Emmy-nominated comedy writer. He says, I could write jokes for 800 years, and I'd never think of something funnier than Trump booking the four seasons for his big presser, and it turning out to be the four seasons total landscaping parking lot between a dildo store and a crematorium. Do you know about this? You know, it's funny. I saw a headline, but I didn't understand it. Now I get it. Yeah. So he, uh, so Rudy Giuliani gave a press conference in front of like a weird, gross, dirty garage. And everyone was like, what is this? And the press looked around and it's like on one side, there was a crematorium on the other side, there was a sex shop and they couldn't figure out why they were there. And the best guess, no confirmation from the campaign yet, but the best guess we can figure is one of two possibilities. Either they tried to book the Four Seasons and simply made a mistake. Or, which I think is probably the most likely one, the president had tweeted out that there would be a press conference at the Four Seasons. Possibly they did that before they actually called to book the Four Seasons Hotel in central Philadelphia. And they wound up at this, like, industrial estate with a landscaping company. Um, and it's just the most hilarious thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't know. It cracks me up. That That, that is amazing. That is amazing. You know, there it, it is sad because uh, some great, far greater people have said, you know, it was very, very hard to do satire in this time because how do you outdo uh, some of the incredible idiocy of the tweets and the utter boobs who made their way into the cabinet and just this parade of mockable horribles who have tried to be leaders of our country in the last four years uh hopefully it's, never again it's unbelievable honestly and yet i just feel that 
you know, a fact-free press conference taking place somewhere between a crematorium and a, and a sex shop is is the Trump presidency. Like, that wasn't what it is. That's all it was. It was a four-year-long yeah. press conference between a dildo store and a crematorium. <laughs> Job done. Um, here's one. This is from Kamala Harris's victory speech. The very start of the speech, she said... Congressman John Lewis, before his passing, wrote, democracy is not a state, it is an act. And what he meant was that America's democracy is not guaranteed. It is only as strong as our willingness to fight for it, to guard it and never take it for granted. I mean, obviously, his life and passing this year are an incredible resonant thing when you think about the challenges that America has been through since its flawed creation uh, and to the present day. Um, when you think about the fact that for a lot of America's existence, in fact, still the majority of it, uh, Kamala Harris could not have voted um, and may have been treated as property uh, before becoming vice president um, is astonishing. Um, and so one of the things that I do think is important about a moment like this is also to step back, right? We have been drowning in the daily for four years, the absurdity, the shocks, the terrible things that have been said, the unleashing of horrible sentiments that we thought had been vanquished or at least hidden from polite conversation. And they came back. And that was, I think, a real lesson to all of us that, you know, the, the jungle can grow back. Uh, history has not come mm -hmm. to an end. The progress does not, the universe does not only bend towards justice. <laughs> progress can be undone. Things fall apart. It takes all of us to make our way to the ramparts to defend democracy, to defend the rights of others at all times. And when we lose sight of that, when we become complacent, when we allow people who would tear down our system and our values into the halls of power, uh, we risk that. Mm. Uh, and so at the same time, we have also had a long history in which terrible things have happened, terrible people have come to power, we have overcome them. And hopefully the real lesson uh, of this moment, but also the next, not only four years, but several elections afterwards, is that we really looked uh, across that precipice and found that that was not the path for America. I think that's really well said. Thank you for that. And I think you're absolutely right that um, nothing about America is inevitable. Like, I think there's a real complacency that we have sometimes had as a country with the the, the, the kind of emerging presumption that, of course, will always be a stable democracy because, you know, we perceive ourselves as having been an early adopter of democratic thinking. But everything erodes if you don't care for it. Maintenance, maintenance matters. But, um, you know, I was thinking a lot this weekend about, you know, John Lewis and, and also Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm just on a, a purely emotional level. I'm I'm feeling sorrow for the greats that we lost this year who don't 
get to know the outcome of our story. You know, it's uh, every time somebody died in the recent past, I've literally every single celebrity, I think they never get to know if we got past the Trump era. They'll never get to know. And I, I just still think about that. I think John Lewis and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in particular would have deserved to know if we were going to survive this era. And I, I feel sad for them that they they missed that. Hey, ho. Here's another one. Um, this is from, oh, this is from Mitt Romney, um, Utah Senator Mitt Romney, former presidential candidate for the Republicans. He says, it is important for the cause of democracy and freedom that we don't allege fraud and theft and so forth, unless there's very clear evidence of that. To date, that evidence has not been produced. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mitt Romney has really shown himself uh, in the last year to be a very important voice. He's obviously a credible Republican, has been so for his lifetime. He rose to the leadership position to represent the Republican Party in an election um, and unfortunately, he's been a rare example of true integrity. Uh, you know, I disagree with so much of what Mitt Romney would want uh, as a president or politician in terms of policies. Uh, but like John McCain, like others, he has stood for principle even when it has not been beneficial for his party. You know, and since that statement, uh, Presidents Bush Sr. and Jr. have both come out to congratulate Biden. And if we don't have leaders who are willing to put country above party, it, when it gets tough, uh, then uh, we're going to be in, in real trouble. Um, and I thought that that was a brave statement. And I also thought the clarity of the statement was really important because some Republicans came out and said things like, you know, it's important in democracy that all votes are counted. And you're kind of like, wait, who's, who are they supporting? <laughs> I mean, yes, but... <laughs> it sounds like they're maybe sort of leaning towards Biden, but they're too scared to say it. Um, and, you know, when, when, when things get tough, you got to be clear uh, about what's right and wrong. And, and Romney was one of the few, you know, brave enough to do it. So kudos to him. Just to pick you up on one thing, uh, President Bush Sr. is no longer with us, is he? So was it Jeb Bush you were thinking of who made a statement? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but but I think you're right. It's clarity is important. And I'd like to see a lot more of that from a lot more Republicans. And and Lindsey Graham, I mean, for heaven's sakes, man, <laughs> get, get it together. Um, he's He's been very unhelpful in this moment. Um. This is from Marissa Franco, the executive director of Mijente, a Latino civil rights organization. And she says, the Biden campaign may have chosen not to spend time in working class, immigrant and people of color neighborhoods. But that is exactly where his victory is coming from and where the solutions he'll need to champion will have to start. Do you recognize anything in that criticism? I mean, it's a it's a it's a funny quote because it says may have and I'm I'm not sure <laughs> if she's saying that they did. I, it certainly was not my experience in in viewing the campaign. I was struck from the beginning that the campaign itself, um, where it showed up, uh, the people that they brought in, obviously the incredible victory. Uh, in South Carolina in the primaries fueled heavily by the African-American community, 
the selection of a woman of color for vice president, you know, showed me that they were working very, very hard and putting out a lot of policies on the website around uh, racial equality. So I am sure that she is right that there could have been more done. And I'm sure that people uh, in minority communities are expecting and should be expecting an enormous amount from this administration, because it's true. They really, in many ways, were the bulwark that delivered. Uh, although it's also interesting that the Latino vote seems to have gone more heavily for President Trump than many would have expected. Um, and again, the proof is going to be in governing. Um, mm. What we need to worry about now and what all the people who are parts of different coalitions need to figure out now is how do, how do they support and enable the Biden-Harris administration to govern boldly on those things that they care about. Right. Uh, it has been such an important year of reckoning uh, for racial inequality in this country, and we can't let that slip into politics as usual. Yeah. I mean, that's a really tricky area, isn't it? I think one of the things that I keep coming back to is that, you know, I, I would never presume to speak on behalf of, of Latino voters, but it's clear that this is a very complicated set of communities, not a community in its in, in, in with any kind of unity. And in Florida, I think we did mu much less well than we hoped to do amongst the Cuban and Venezuelan communities. Um, and yet in other places, we did we did quite well with kind of non-Cuban and Venezuelan vo voters. And it, I, I think the fact that it's a Sanders-supporting um, organization head that's speaking out in this really, really touches to that, because in some parts of the Latino community, any hint of democratic socialism is really, really poison. And in others, it's really popular, right? Bernie Sanders did, Bernie Sanders in the primary did quite well with Latino voters. So it's, it's hard to pick a lesson to draw from that. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's one of the, you know, one of the few sort of gaffes that, that, that the vice president made during the campaign was around this issue of making sure that the different, uh, communities, whether it's African-American, Hispanic, other communities, Latino, uh, uh, and even even uh, women, um, that, that they are not an undifferentiated group uh, and, and that catering to them uh, and making them truly a part of the coalition really requires policies that speak to what different parts uh, of those groups want to see and not just assuming that because the other candidate is racist uh, or that you were the vice president uh, of a black president, uh, that, that that carries weight. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really challenging. And I think, I think it was particularly challenging for this year because whilst we did an amazing job, I think, at turning out our core voters, so did the other guys. And the Republicans had a huge uh, surge on their side. We're lucky enough that our coalition is bigger, but we're not always going to be able to rely upon, um, you know, in, in the past, in 2008, I'm thinking of um, Republican vote was down a little bit. We need to both maximize every every single vote available from our own coalition and also try and, you know, prevent some of the worst parts of their coalition from being overrepresented. So it's it's quite a challenge we've got here. Yeah.
Listen, Alex, I really appreciate your time today. It's been great talking to you. And I'm so excited for continuing to talk about the Biden-Harris administration and President-elect Biden and his his much, much more uh, optimistic and uh, beautiful vision for the future. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Yeah, well, thank you, Karen. Thanks for keeping this great podcast going. Uh, and informing your listeners about all the exciting changes to come in the United States. (laughs) Thank you very much. I I think I have just committed today to keeping it going, at least through the January 5th Georgia Georgia runoffs, because, you know, whatever I can do. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at KarenJR. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Um, I will continue to post further information and updates as well as a link to register for that uh, Democratically 2020 Thanksgiving event that I mentioned at the top of the podcast um, on my Twitter feed. And I will also put a link in the show notes uh, for this episode when it's ready to go out. Uh, Really hope to see you there. Um, As always, I should let you know that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me here, and I wish you a very happy week.